welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast. And today I'm joined by musician Douglas McIntyre, filmmaker Grant McPhee, and journalist Neil Cooper to talk about their new book, Hungry Beat, the Scottish Independent Pop Underground Movement, 1977 to 1984. Hello, Douglas, Grant, and Neil. Hi. Hi, Alistair. Hi, Alistair. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I feel kind of bad. I feel that each of you deserve a full podcast on your own for me to talk to you. Uh, because of what the stuff you've done with Grant's films and your music and Neil's journalism. So maybe that's something we could look at at a later date. But for now, it's great to have you all on. And it's great to talk about Hungry Beat. Douglas, first of all, can you tell us how Hungry Beat came about and what it's about? Okay, well, how it came about was Grant uh, had, had made a, an amazing documentary film called Big Gold Dream which sort of chronicled, I guess, fast product moving through into postcard and beyond. So Grant and his team had amassed, you know, substantial amount of interview content. And obviously there's only a certain amount could appear in the film. Uh, so I just felt like it was a really good opportunity to try and present, a, a, you know, a, a book edition. And I mean, I was, I'm a really big fan of the, uh, John Savage book, England's Dreaming, and uh, the Clinton Hayton uh, from the Velvets to the Voidoids. And I think when you hear, uh, you know, as an oral history, when people are using their own words, to me, it feels like it's more, more powerful than if it's an academic uh, overview. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to not make it overly dry and to try and focus on, I think, the and the continuation of the work that Grant had done. So that's that's largely uh, where we picked up on it. I think you're absolutely right about the way it's written because it offers lots of different viewpoints, sometimes on the same people in the same events, which kind of gives it, you know, rather than just have been one point of view, there is multiple points of view. Mm -hmm. And Grant, you had all of this uh, interview stuff. Did you ever think it would be used for something else or you did, did you just think that would end up on the cutting room floor? No, I think, um, you know, at some point wanted something to happen with them. And the way we made the film, it was like very talking heads, heavy, and, you know, it really suited itself to the format. Our um, sort of blueprint was the world at war, the second world war film where everything's like primary sources. And, um, you know, we had maybe 45 minutes of like interview in the film when he cut in music and mm -hmm. archive and um, so on. And, you know, we, we had, you know, I can't remember, it must be like well over 150 hours worth right. of interview material. And, you know, we could probably make another couple of books, um, which could be dangerous. Um, but it just felt like, you know, something was good. And when you know, Douglas and I met during the making of Big Girl and Dream and gone really well. And this is just something that um, came up, you know, a few years later. It was always in the back of my mind and Douglas just instigated it, which was like fantastic. It just felt that there was so much more to this story to be told and um, it, it seemed to work out well. And Neil, how did you become involved uh, with the book? Um, well, I mean, Douglas and Grant's asked me, I mean, some way into it. I mean, it was pretty much a, a done deal before, you know, before I got involved. And then um, I did some new interviews and uh, a couple of other things. And, 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 and that, that was it really. I mean, I, I knew Douglas and Grant 
for you know for, for a good few years interviewed them um for various things about big gold dream about creeping bents and and and, and and all of that so i mean i'm aware of the history and obviously i was into that whole milieu anyway mm-hmm. and like so it just seemed like a, a a really good fit um i think um i hope so anyway so the interviews in the book majority come from Grant's interviews, it sounds like, but there's also some new ones, and I feel there's also some older ones as well, some archived. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, it's been said that, you know, a lot came from Big Old Dream, but, you know, Douglas and Neil did, you know, you know, nearly, it's like half the amount of them in the book, and a lot were revisited yeah. as well. You know, there's a, it's not just Big Old Dream, there's a, you know, a vast amount of new material in there as well. And what's uh, having read it, it's kind of seamless, which I suppose is a good thing. You know, you can't tell where uh, which has come from where. Um, it was an interesting book for me because I kind of knew the postcard story, but I didn't really know the fast product records story. And is that just me being parochial uh, Western Scots, or is, do you think that's the case that the fast story hasn't been as widely told as um, a postcard? It's part of the the east-west dynamic that probably runs through the book as well. But uh, I, I think the fast product and pop oral story hasn't really had the same voice as Postcard, just for various reasons. And uh, again, to go back to Grant's film, I think that addressed the balance yeah. uh, to a certain extent. And, you know, they were all really important. They were all different. They all had uh, their particular... Uh, you know, features. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think most people, I mean, like you, Alistair, I'm, I'm West Coast, so uh, it just felt because it was on our doorsteps postcard, yeah. there was so much more that was accessible to us. And also, uh, I was just a wee bit young for the fast product mm-hmm. uh, movement as it was happening, but I did go through to all the gigs. Right. So, you know, I would regularly go through to Valentino's and to JJ's to, to watch all of these bands. So, uh, but yeah, I think I think both labels and the dynamics around them are, are fascinating. And it's, it's I think it's really important that they were documented. Well, I think that's one of the great things about Big Gold Dream is that for me, I knew the, some of the band names, but I didn't know that there was this record label in Edinburgh, which would kind of was so influential, not just in Edinburgh, but you know, far wide, and we'll talk a bit about that in a moment. Neil, what do you feel about that? Do you feel that one story has been favoured or told more often than the other? Yes, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm not not sure why that is, but you know, I mean, I, growing up as well, you know, in, in, you know, I I grew up in Liverpool and picked up on postcards and fast when I, when I was I was a teenager, and there was, there was something kind of I suppose more immediate in a way. That it's a postcard for all its cheek and its ambition and and all all the great things that came out of um, Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, Joseph K, and and of course the go-betweens. Fast, there was something more, I don't know, I suppose mysterious about it because there was this whole spate of inverted commas regional labels like Factory in Manchester, Zoo in Liverpool, uh, Postcard in Glasgow. Yes, Fast was Edinburgh, but it, there was a kind of uh, internationalism to it, if you, if you like, you know, it, you know, it, even put like its last single uh, with with putting the dead dead Kennedys out, you know. But then it, it went beyond its doorstep 
you know, it didn't have to go very far from its doorstep because you know, it, it was run from the street next door to Edinburgh College of Art. But but it, it was a while before they even put out a record by an Edinburgh band, which of course was Scars. Um, and and um, you know, yeah, it, it looked beyond beyond its doorstep, I suppose, with, with Mekons and Gang of Four and all that. So it wasn't as easy to grab hold of. Mm. And there was... Um, uh, the art to it, you know. I mean, it wasn't really a record label. It was kind of, it, it was an art concept um, put into record sleeves. Yeah, I mean, it's often uh, compared to what Andy Warhol was doing in the factory and, and, and with those kind of things. And Grant, as a filmmaker, when you came to uh, make your film, did you feel that there was, was it easier to access material on the postcard side of things rather than fast? Um, I'd be very political here. Um, uh, in in terms of material in the what was available online at the time we did it, which was like you know at that time the internet was like incredibly important to like making contacts. Um, there was a lot of stuff research wise on postcards, and you know I think that's like quite interesting with like Wikipedia. Um, a lot of these online journals can be quite lazy in the references references to things which are online so it's very easy for somebody or something to be lost and it felt that accessing anything fast products related like online online it's like quite difficult in terms of accessing the people involved um fast side the Edinburgh side was like a dream you know we met up with Malcolm Ross from Joseph K straight away and he it was him who told me about the scars a band I'd never heard of mm -hmm. um and you know this was just a whole new world opening up to me um, likewise you know with yourself postcard was like my introduction mm -hmm. to the Scottish music and um it became almost like a sort of puzzle but you know one person linked to somebody else and in terms of researching you know old school wise um you know picking up a telephone and speaking to people of it was very easy to get uh, so, you know, anything sort of fast and Edinburgh related. Um, I think possibly because the story hadn't been told or yeah. you know, fallen a little bit to the wayside, which is quite unfair, I thought, and it felt like um, it was like a duty to get that story told. Well, that's the really interesting part to me because there's lots of things I didn't know, like the release of the Dead Kennedys. I reckoned I had, but I didn't realise that's who had put it out. Um, the, the link with the Human League, at least, you know, that was fascinating to see that you've got this kind of strand of things going. And Douglas, you mentioned about going through for gigs. And of course, in Glasgow, there weren't really punk gigs happening because the council had kind of shut it down. So people, I think it feels to me that punk had a much stronger uh, importance, a bigger importance in Edinburgh than it did in Glasgow, maybe for that reason. I think in Glasgow, there was a real, um, you know, punk was absolutely absorbed in Glasgow, but it, it didn't really have the same outlets that yeah. I think Edinburgh had. And very quickly, uh, and, and most of these cities like Manchester, what was punk lasted a very short period of time and it moved on to something beyond. Uh, most of the Scottish, uh, you know, artists or labels um, from Edinburgh and Glasgow were probably more fascinated by Vic Goddard and the Subway sect, for example, than the damned you know so so it became more of a uh 
it just became something there was a there was a desire for it, a need for it, and I think that was true in Glasgow as well. It just didn't really have the outlets until a few years later, when uh, probably a scene started in the bungalow bar, which in Paisley, which again yeah. was a continuation of what had happened with you know the you know the punk rock hotel there. And that's one of the things in the book is uh, the importance of places for people to go and play, and even gigs. You know, there's there's kind of seminal gigs that it seems that a lot of people were at, or mm -hmm. and we'll talk a bit about some of those. Is one of them the Clash? Is that right about that? Yeah, I mean the Clash uh, White Riot tour when it played Edinburgh on the seventh of May, nineteen seventy seven, is you know infamously when most of the uh, uh, you know the, the the people that became the main protagonists in Fast Product and Postcard uh, and the people that formed bands. Uh, they were all at that gig, but rather than The Clash being the band that really ignited them, it was like The Slits yeah. and, you know, uh, and The Subway Sect. And I, and I think there's a lot of importance also due to, to John Peel, because, you know, the, the work that, um, that was done by him and John Walters in getting The Subway Sect recorded uh, and The Slits and The Prefects, I mean, those records are, those recordings are defining you yeah. know, uh, by the time Subway Sect released an album, it didn't really have any bearing on you know, their first Peel session. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, fanzines were really important, uh, Peel was really important, and just trying to find out what was happening and trying to connect with some of the, the gigs that were happening was, uh, you know, it was hard work. It wasn't laid on a plate for you. You know, you had to work hard to, to find out what was happening. I think that that is interesting in itself. The fact if you wanted to read about this music, you almost had to, you know, do it yourself. Like Bobby Bluebell doing his own fanzine, which I didn't know about either. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was this, it was the DIY aesthetic, if you like, ran through everything. It wasn't just the people making music. It was the people putting the records out. It was the people putting the fanzines out. It was the people with their record shops. I mean, to me, it was an incredibly important cultural period for for youth, for young people, for teenagers and people in their early 20s. Uh, it just felt there was something in the air that, you know, every there was something happening and it was ignited by punk. But I think for that period in Scotland, there was lots of different cultural impetus, you know, that I think resulted in things like, you know, Michael Clark coming through, mm -hmm. you know, some years later. And even with an older generation, uh, you know, like Alistair Gray, Lanark being published, it just felt there was a lot of different things happening that all seemed to feed into each other and all seemed to establish more of a confidence in being Scottish rather than being ashamed of being Scottish culturally, which was largely the case, I think. Neil, that's an interesting point. How did you view the Scotland of that time with this new music coming out, new writers coming out as well? Well, I mean, it, it, it was quite important. I mean, in, you know, you know, picking up on Orange Juice and Aztec Camera, I mean, it, it had its influence in, in, in Liverpool on bands. I mean, I mean, I saw Orange Juice um, and they, 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 the, the only time I saw them, I mean, they, they were supported by the Pale Fountains, the Wild Swans, both doing their debut gigs. And then a couple of months later, Aztec Camera played and supported again by the Pale Fountains. So there seemed to be a synergy there. I think, you know, again, it was this kind of uh, mutual energy that was happening in cities outside London, I think, yeah. um, where, where, where people were kind of seizing the means of productions, whether it be through fanzines or record labels or forming bands or, or whatever, 
as, as Douglas has said, and, and just kind of, um, well, just doing it. But there, there was this synergy of, um, I don't know, trying to almost de-macho, dematchify, if that's a word, uh, the, the, the kind of city life and make something more, much more imaginative that was going on in the kind of post-punk environment anyway, I think. I mean, I mean that, that, that it, it all came from it. And, you know, as Douglas said, I mean, you, you got your information. It genuinely felt kind of alternative, you know, it, it's a much overused word now. I think, but you know, and in a pre-internet era, going to a record shop on a Saturday afternoon, that was that was the gateway into a whole new world, whether it's a record or a poster on the wall or an advert or a fanzine. And you know, that was the thing. But it, it, all all places were connected. Yeah, that's what was really interesting as well, that you had all these indie record labels who weren't kind of fighting against each other for most of the time, there were some exceptions but that were actually learning from each other, Factory from Fast and Zoo from Postcard and, and all of those things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, there, there, there was an energy and I think, I think there was something there that was a hangover as well from the hippie era. Although, you know, uh, you know Richard Branson and Virgin became what that became. Um, you know, even, even at punk time, you know, in the major labels, let, 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 let's not forget that, you know, um, the Human League and the Mekons, um, you know, all, all fast product acts yeah. and it's signed to Virgin. And, you know, it was Virgin who, you know, it spent, spent the 70s kind of um, through Mike Oldfield to um, Faust and people like that, that kind of underground progness. Um, and, and picking up on the punk and the post-punk in that really int interesting period that Douglas is talking about. So, you know, but, but that, that hangover of uh, being able to do things, I think, I think fed, into, fed into punk as well. Although, you know, the idea of like, you know, um, it, it felt very, it think, things livened up with punk and post-punk, I think. And, you know, the whole kind of hippie thing had grown tired, but there was a spirit of openness, I think, that, yeah. that, that, that um, people slightly older, like Bill Drummond or Bob Last and, or Hilary Morrison or Tony Wilson, they kind of got the, the, the dregs of the hippie era and fed that into their own visions. Yeah, and that's interesting because you always get the feeling from the outside that you had your kind of year zero with punk and what came before was discarded. But then as time went on, people started to say, well, actually I did like Van der Graaff Generator or something like that. I could find stuff in that. And going back to, as you say, having people making the things for themselves, Grant, did you find that there was a lot of, when you were doing the film and for the book, a lot of archive that you could go and deal with physical stuff? Um, it, was, it was actually very difficult, you know, nowadays, you know, if you miss a gig, you can go onto YouTube and you'll have like about five, ten people uploading what you missed online. And um, for us, you know, you had you know, probably the closest thing to an iPhone would be like a Super 8 camera. And that was still a luxury for a lot of people. And so there was really very little archive at the time. And, you know, when you're making a documentary, obviously one of the most engaging things is like, archive footage of like bands. Um, we had fantastic photography archives like Hillary from Fast Hillary Morrison, like a fantastic photographer. So that was 
great. And as Neil and Douglas both said, you know, a lot came out of punk, not just music. And mm-hmm. photographers were um, a big part of that. And, you know, there's some fantastic photographers. You know, Robert Sharp is one of the, you know, most, you know, well-known um, documenters of like postcards, like through his photography, and it really is fantastic. Um, that part was easy um, when it came to, um, you know, accessing more sort of like BBC orientated sort of material. Once they started to get a bit more f- famous, you know, that was difficult because that gets into your sort of licensing um, restrictions. And you know, we were. Our, our film was like made completely independently and we didn't have the luxury to be able to license everything. So we relied on a lot of goodwill from people. Um, so it is, you know, it's, it's like fascinating for me just um, finding anything of that era. You know, fanzines really were, I think, the way yeah. that that era is like brought to life beyond the, um, obviously, you know, the records themselves. Now, there's a quote from Bob Last. There's a lot of quotes from Bob Last in, in the book, but one that says that this was a lot of the bands he was dealing with were intellectuals playing simple music, which kind of struck me. Do you think he's right about that? Or was that just a kind of, there's a lot of throwaway lines as well from both him and uh, Alan Horn. They were very good at that kind of thing. But what do you think about that idea? I think, the, uh, I think there was a lot of raw intelligence whether that's the same as intellectuals, I'm not not entirely sure. But your know, young people were really, uh, you know, they were really searching for something, you know. And I think again, I think that's the influence of punk. It was very much, you know, uh, a, you know, we're, we're anti ignorance. That's one of Joe Strummer's great mm. phrases, I think. You know, with the Clash, and anti ignorance was a big thing. It was like you were you were really keen to find out. Well, who's Andy Warhol? He's a guy that does the cans. But yeah. well, what else has he done? So you would research it yourself through books or whatever. Um, you know, everyone was reading. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the bungalow bar in Paisley to see a band, and uh, everyone had their Jean Paul Trastre uh, nausea copy with them. So you know, you know, even though a lot of that would be a pose, it was just the fact that well, that's a pose as opposed to you know, uh, what happened when, when Oasis broke through. You know, I felt like um, there was a real a real questing spirit with young people and, uh, and, and just a raw intelligence. I think one of the things Bob does talk about in the book is particularly, you know, with uh, Robert King and Davy Henderson from Scars and from Fire Engines and just that absolute uh, natural thing you know, raw intelligence that was born of being inquisitive. Yeah. You know, and trying to make things up, trying to, you know, it's almost like amusing yourselves by creating stuff, making things up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, th- this is it. This is what kind of punk and post-punk kind of o- opened up. And, and as, as Douglas has said, I mean, it, it was kind of that whole whole generation. It, they weren't expected to do any of these things, but they did. They they did it anyway. I mean, there was the, the gateway through the music, and, it, and as, as Douglas said, it opened up to to books, to art, to to everything. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, and at the, near the end of the book. You start to get uh, Roy Cole getting referenced, and you know their Rattlesnakes album is a classic example of that. It's just filled <laughs> with reference and, uh, and and image. 
And Grant, you mentioned uh, Hilary Morrison, who's central to the fast story anyway. Could you maybe talk a little bit about her? Well, Derek, if, I'm all right just to like backtrack just a second about the rudimentary music. I think sure. what is interesting about that is I think there was like two schools. I think postcards were very much making rudimentary music, but wanting to make, um, you know, cheek-like records. And I think Bob was very interested in actual rudimentary music, almost like outsider art with, you know, signing up like a, an 11 year old Adamski um, mm -hmm. playing ukulele with his little brother. But, um, you know, there's so many talented musicians who came out of that scene. It was obviously people like Pete DeFratis, the drummer from Echo and the Bunnymen. And I, I think that's somebody who would just never have come into music if it wasn't for punk. People like Malcolm Ross, a fantastically gifted guitarist. You know, so I think rudimentary is I think quite unfair you know it allowed people to pick up instruments to play something um which they hadn't become and it's like the attitude but also some fantastic musicians really did come out of that scene which they probably never would have come to you know because everyone was so into the cliche of like playing like um somebody in that kind of thing yeah yeah um but Hillary is somebody who is like fascinating I think you know as I mentioned earlier on it's like very easy in this modern age for references to reference um, something of the near past and your know, Wikipedia is like really is terrible for that and um, Bob is quite an interesting person and I think that one of the reasons like fast was you know seen laterally as like a footnote is because he didn't promote himself in the same way that a lot of the other impresarios did. And what was written about Bob, um, or, you know, fast should say was Bob. And Hillary really was a huge, huge part of fast. Um, she was Bob's partner at the time. And I think as is mentioned in the film or the book, it's difficult to tell, they all merge into to one that um, she was like referred to as like the heart of fast. I think that is important. I don't think Bob um, was into, you know, what is like, you know, inverted commas, like down on the street, whereas like Hillary being the same age as people like Davy and Rab, um, you know, were. And I think it was like her that brought a lot of the Scottish bands like too fast. Um, right. And I think she is as much fast as Bob was. Well, that's interesting because I mean, there's not a lot of women in the book, and I'm, there's Claire Grogan, Alison Gourley, um, Strawberry Switchblade, Faye Fife. Was that just the time it was, or was the Scottish indie music scene kind of mostly a boys' game, to put it that way? Tricky. I think you know, Douglas and, and Neil will be able to you know, give better answers, but you know, it is, it's very interesting. You know, we've tried to create the story you know, from my perspective as true to life as it was in my naivety at first, you know, I just assumed that, um, you know, with punk, the barriers would have like opened up like equally and uh, Hillary has some like very interesting, like quite dark tales that, um, you know, th that just didn't happen. And, you know, it was quite often just the same people, you know, it was like young males and, you know, more worryingly the sort of like older people in the record mm -hmm. industry who just 
didn't see female fronted bands in the same way. And that's why I think there are very few female fronted bands who are like signed up. You know, there's some fantastic bands like you know, the Twin Sets and X from Edinburgh and Sophisticated Boom Boom in Glasgow. But um, for whatever reason, the year zero moment then to me didn't seem to break into actually signing these female bands up, which is yeah. a shame. Douglas, what was your thoughts on that? Well, I think probably from the book's perspective, we did focus more on the the artists that were signed. Yeah. And yeah, obviously yeah. there were far fewer female musicians that were part of that. Uh, I think one of the question marks in retrospect, I feel I should probably uh, we should have discussed a bit more was was the bands that you know Grant just mentioned there because sophisticated boom boom in Glasgow, I thought were a big band. Yeah, you too. know, and uh, you know their peel sessions were great, and I used to go and see them a lot, and they just felt the exact same as the other bands. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I suppose the the big difference was for whatever reason, they nobody put any records out by them at the time which is crazy when you listen to the Peel sessions, it just, and, you know, from going to see them live at the time, it just felt a bit crazy. But um, I guess that was, a you know, we, we did focus more on the uh, the artists that were actually signed, but the it was, a, as Grant said, it was a true reflection of what was happening then. Yeah, I know it feels like that, because you mentioned the influence of seeing people seeing the Slips play live, but having read a lot of Ev Albertine's memories of the time, there was problems there that was problematic yeah yeah i mean i think those problems uh you know there was this feeling that you and you know punk let's remember it did break down massive barriers because you know suddenly you've got you know tina weymouth any amount of musicians who are in bands they weren't just the the vocalists and uh and the slits in particular and others the modettes there were lots of bands uh, with you know with female musicians and that felt uh, that felt normal prior to punk it felt like it was a gimmick yeah you know oh there's a you know the velvet underground they've got a female drummer ha ha there was a bit of that attitude i think with the the rock critic orthodoxy but punk did change that but i think in terms of the business the business still yeah was pretty sexist and repugnant in terms of of that, I think, to be honest. Well, you kind of get new music, but the old business model still... I think that's it. I think within the younger people that were moving forward, it did feel like year zero, but obviously to take what they were doing to the to, to, to market effectively, they had to still interact with record labels and, you know, some of the record labels, particularly established larger labels, it was kind of old school. Yeah. You know, and it is, old school. It is tough for, you know, us talking about this because you know we're not females and we're seeing this from uh, a male trying to see it from a female's perspective and I think Carol Easton's making a fantastic film yeah. um, since yesterday which you know, hopefully will address a lot of this and fill in a lot of gaps that um, you know, we've not covered and I think it's going to be a really important film. I, I agree I'm really looking forward to seeing that uh, as well. We've talked about uh, Fast, but let's talk a bit about um, a Postcard as well. Do you feel that Fast begat Postcard or was it always going to happen anyway? Well, I think, uh, you know, Orange Juice, when they made their first of, you know, even before the single, they made some recordings. They sent them to Zoo 
to try and get a record deal and they'd sent them to majors. So, you know, they were trying to figure out a way of of making records. And uh, I think probably the influence of Fast was important for everyone. It obviously influenced Factory. And uh, as the book mentions, there was a lot of dialogue with Tony Wilson and Bob Last. So I think, I think probably Postcard could see, well, if they can release records on their own, why can't we try and do likewise? And uh, I think the canny move in all of that was Alan Horn, a figure now, let's get another band. Let's get an Edinburgh band and a Glasgow band because if it had just been Orange Juice, it would have felt very much like a self-release type label. Whereas having Orange, having Joseph K and Orange Juice, it was almost like they were the yin and yang. It was the cowboy and the Indian. It felt <laughs> felt very uh, uh, like they were darker sides. You know, the Joseph K was the darker side of Orange Juice, etc. So I think that was a smart move and that gave it a that gave it a massive amount of momentum, which was a simple thing to do, but it was a really clever thing to do. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And uh, although you do get the sense throughout that Alan, you know, was in love with one band and the other had kind of tolerated a bit, which is an interesting thing to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I think if you to speak to the people in Joseph K, they probably felt they had to tolerate being treated like that in order to get the records out. Um, uh, but yeah, I guess that's just the way it was. It's a, an unusual, unorthodox way of, of uh, referring to your bands, I think. One of the things, like with with um, both labels, I think, is that, and a, a lot of the, the labels at that time was that they, for a kid buying their records and reading about this stuff, it seemed much bigger than it actually was because yeah. of the ambition and the style and the kind of um, maybe arrogance even of it, it just, it, it, it did appear like it was, um, you know, postcard of records of Scotland. It did appear like it was M Motown. You didn't realize that these th things were being put together in in somebody somebody's flat in the West End of Glasgow and, and people putting putting in the sleeves and being and felt tipped in. Um, you, you know, you didn't realize that these people were on the dole and that you, you did because it that was, I don't know, it was an alternative and it just, just seemed much, much bigger and much, much fresher. And I think for me that was in a lot of the music of postcard as well. It was kind of widescreen, you know, it was something different. Um, you know, and you think, I, I was brought up in uh, Canberra Slang, and you think, the boy up the road, Enesco Bride's making that music, this huge thing, and he's, he's cowboy fringe jacket and the style and everything. And you're right, it seems much bigger than just, you know, folk of similar minds getting together and, and sticking labels on records. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it just... Yes, I mean the the, the 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 whole scene was like that. It was like you know, I mean, you're you're speaking about Roddy Frame there, obviously. Yeah. I mean, obviously he was a genius player from a very early age. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of the others, um, you know, and 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 I would inc include include Malcolm in a genius player as a genius player as well. But a, a lot of it was sort of aspiring to sound like chic or the Velvet Underground or some unholy marriage between the two, but or like Parliament or Funkadelic or that, but not maybe having the chops to be able to play it and it coming out inverted commas wrong and it, but it fusing 
together to make something brand new. And Is that dialectics? It, it could be. It could be. <laughs> and what comes across, because you've got this short, relatively short time period, but the change in the music, I think particularly with, with Postcard, is quite astonishing. You know, I always think back to how long it took, oh, it took the Blue Nile to make a record, but, you know, the second Stone Roses album or whatever. And you've got this period of time and it comes across in the music of Simple Minds as well, where they change quite dramatically in that time. Um, and is that something, uh, Grant, that you were interested in, or did you have a clear cutoff where you went, right, I don't want to look at the music after this point? No, I think um, it is fascinating, and it's very like the 1960s, when you listen to something from you know, 1961, like Delshine's Runaway, to something from 1965, like Beatles, Tickets Ride, you know, it was like, yeah. a lifetime of difference and then to something like from 1970 and um this period which we've covered you know that is very similar if you listen to like something from 1977 you know, it's like just three chords um thrashing away but then you know, by 1978 you know just like a year yeah. later you have like some fantastically interesting stuff and that's when you know i think it was the, the doors had opened and people, you know, as Malcolm Ross said, the slate had been wiped clean and people started experimenting. You know, I think post-punk is a, a kind name for maybe something like um, punk prog or whatever it is. Um, it's just, you know, from having very limited recording budgets, what people could achieve within that. And obviously as the 80s progressed, technology progressed and budgets increased, that technology came into force. So you know, from something like 1977 to, you know, let's say like 1978 from being boiled, using primitive electronics mm -hmm. to like dare, you know, it's like a world difference. And then up to, um, you know, the Strawberry Switchblade album and the wind singles produced by David Motion, you know, it's like everything in the studios that I've thrown in. Um, it is a, a fascinating change, and I think, as like Neil and Douglas have both alluded to, it's that aspirations have changed as well. People could believe that they could do more. I think at first it's just like getting up and playing the guitar, and then it was like, actually, hold on. But we can do something that can compete with everybody else. And to me, that's like a fascinating and powerful thing. And, and these people did. There's some um, Spritty Blitty had Miles Davis playing with them, you know, like seven years after they were like sitting in a squat. You know, that's insane. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, did it feel like that at the time, Douglas, when you were involved? I'm kind of thinking, particularly the music of Davy Henderson jumps out at me, going from the fire engines to doing wind and, you know, this incredible pop production. Did you feel that things were changing almost on a weekly basis? I think things did change remarkably because, uh, I mean, with, with Postcard, I, I felt there was a real ambition there with Postcard. And to a certain extent, uh, I felt the postcard became technicolor. I think it was a word you used earlier on. And it's someone, it's almost like someone had switched on a color television mm -hmm. and postcard were looking forward. Uh, although they were looking backwards to the Buffalo Springfield and the birds yeah. to move forward, but it created a real uh, forward momentum and it became the single biggest uh, influential label 
for that short period of time. It, everything changed very, very quickly from from their first single through to, you know, uh, Orange Juice's first single through to their final one, Poor Old Soul. It felt like it was a massive journey. And it was a journey where their intelligence and their ability to sell themselves to the music press Mm-hmm. was fascinating you know I mean they got everyone jumping on planes to come up to Glasgow to talk to them you know and, and that's I think one thing um, that you could really say Alan Horn had a, a, a I think a big leap on Bob last you know Bob was good at playing the press but Alan I think was incredible you know he really made uh, you know he made people want to know more about Postcard more about what's the next band on Postcard what's happening you know uh, who are these bluebells? So, for example, as soon as the bluebells or the, the you know the jazz of tears became, uh, you know, part of postcard, although they didn't release on the label, suddenly they're getting, uh, you know, the bluebells are on the front page of the Melody Maker, and they're on the Ogre Whistle Test, and the jazz of tears are in all the music press. Mm-hmm. Albeit it was largely Alan that was doing their interviews for them, but it was, uh, <laughs> but you know that that was that was the, that was the power that I think postcard had. Yeah, and um, you just just feel that you know they probably just naturally ran out of steam, but it felt like it could have they could have taken it up a level if they'd uh, retained their confidence. That's interesting to hear because reading it, it feels or it, as though it would be quite frantic near the end. There were so many ideas being thrown about, and uh, and the changes, the jazzeteers, are the bourgeois bourgeois, are they? You know, the, mm. all of those changes. And I just wondered, being in the middle of that, whether that was uh, a little bit discombobulating. Well, I mean, t- to me, as, as a fan, you know, I feel I was pretty much viewing it from externally. Right. It felt to me that, um, and, you know, this is alluded to in the book as well, I think when Orange Juice moved to a major, it changed everything. And and it really, I think thereafter, because Bob had always encouraged the fast bands to sign to majors. Yeah. I think when Orange Juice did that, Everyone else that was still on the label were thinking, and Alan Horn himself were thinking, let's reposition ourselves and become a production company and try and make records and license them to majors. So to, to answer your question with, with the fire engines, the, the fire engines, I think, were a complete movement unto themselves almost. Right. But when that finally stopped, I th- there was definitely an idea of, of entryism. Everyone wanted to buy in. Right. To, to, to mainstream success and I think that comes back to Bob taking the human league from being this experimental electronic band to be number one throughout the world so everyone else is thinking why can't we do that yeah. and it became it became hip to be on a, a major as opposed to yeah. being on an independent and that was you know when I first I met the Jazz of Tears when I moved to Glasgow and I remember they were um, they were making a record for Rough Trade at the time and they were a wee bit disparaging about rough trade. I mean, I don't know if they were repeating something they'd heard elsewhere, but it kind of just struck me as you know, rough trade are an amazing label. You know, you have got the, the the go-betweens and Aztec camera on there. Why would you be uh, yeah. slightly negative about it? But it was because they wanted to sign a major deal, mm-hmm. which they ultimately did with Bourgeois Bourgeois. But everyone was trying to sign a major deal, and being on a major was hip. Being on rough trade wasn't hip. Yeah, it's really interesting. And Neil, as a music fan at the time, did you consider such a thing? I don't think I did. I mean, I knew there was postcard bands and I liked them, but I still liked them when they were releasing records on major labels as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it did change things, I, I think. I mean, you know, I was a sort of indie purist in a way and, you know, was, was, was barely discovering the whole kind of independent DIY aesthetic before that move to that kind of entryist move into the major labels. But so there was a difference, I guess. I suppose, um, I suppose what it changed was that kind of uh, slight exclusivity or, or rarity. It's like, this is mine. Yeah. Um, you know, th th this is my little corner and that, but now it's the world's. So, you know, one minute you, you're buying Being Boiled and uh, Dignity of Labour EPs in, in the kind of rack in probe records in Liverpool, and the next there's posters for Dare everywhere. You know, I mean, that, that thing, it's like, okay. And I, you know, I didn't know the ins and outs how these were things, no. things were working. You know, I knew uh, there, there was um, something there to do with Fast Still but I couldn't quite figure out what it was at the time. Um, so it, it, it did change things, but you know, everything was happening so fast yeah. and people were doing their growing up in public, I suppose, both the bands and the managers. And maybe that's why they run out of steam, you know, and, yeah. and you know, and once you get into uh, the big label, uh, big, big label world, it's like, Yes, that entryism is, a, is a, a wonderful ideal, but there's also the danger of being consumed by it as well, which has happened. So many, you yeah. know, fell by the wayside with. I think it's maybe the difference between being a music fan and being a musician yourself, whereas the musician wants to do and take things as far as we can, whereas sometimes yeah. we have a really pure idea about how things should be, yeah. which is probably really unfair, I have to say. But, uh, um, so let's go back to the structure of the book, because what it does is offer up all sorts of different perspectives, as I said at the beginning, which is a really healthy way, I think, of reading it, because, uh, well, let's take Alan Horn as a divisive figure, you know, get some people saying one thing about him, and then other people kind of think, oh, no, maybe it wasn't like that after all. Um, was that something, Grant, that you want to do with your film and with the book, or was it just the way that it happened? I think, um... As I mentioned earlier on, the world of war, you know, um, wasn't being facetious. That actually was yeah. a huge influence because I think there's something so um, truthful about somebody giving their own perspective on something about their own life rather than having somebody talk for them. But as you know, somebody mentioned in one of my other films, it's like a crime scene reconstruction because you know with the expanse of time and everybody's interpretation of what happened um you know nobody remembers anything in the same way um and you know when we ask questions you know like for the book and like for the film where we ask 20 people the same question and you have maybe 15 people giving you a very very similar answer which is um you know probably excused by time and ravages of youth and um, then other people have a completely different interpretation that's um, you know you have to ask questions like why they do that and for our narrative you know we have to think you know why is that person saying that you know how will a reader interpret that but I think as I said you know there is something very truthful about somebody giving their own interpretation and you know while we have 
drawn some lines in the story, I think it's up to the reader for them to interpret in their own way. You know, I think that's exactly what it does. It leaves you open to saying, well, um, that's, this is as full of pictures I'm going to get from other people, but it's up to you to decide how you view events and all of those things. And But Douglas, were you worried that there would be any negative feedback from people that are still around and and some of them making music? Um, not really, because, I mean, everything that we did, I mean, we, we're all fans. So we're coming from the perspective of, you know, we really love these records. We love these labels. We, we love the artists and the people that are involved in, in make, bringing these records to people's attention. So we just tried to tell the, you know, to, to allow the people to tell the story in their own words as much as possible. So, you know, I think if there's, obviously, as you mentioned there, there are different people of conflicting memories or viewpoints, but that's healthy. And I think we consciously tried to remain and I think we succeeded in remaining neutral throughout and yeah. just allowed the people to tell their story but our our standpoint always has been uh, it's an incredible period of time and what these labels achieved in a really short period mm -hmm. of time uh, to me it's much more akin to an art movement than yeah. commercial business yeah I mean, I don't think as a reader, you never you never feel like you're being taken in one direction or the other or forced into something. It's absolutely up to you to. I'm interested though, Grant, that you said you've got loads of other footage and interview, so you could come up with a completely different version of the same book. I think you can, um, and you know, because although you know what we'd have to do is like uh, I think Simon Reynolds actually did it is um we'd have to have every interview transcribed, um, you know, words for words, because, you know, Doris Neal and myself and, you know, the people at White Rabbit, you know, we've been allowed to edit somebody's story. So, you know, while it's truth, it's not, you know, the truth. Yeah, um, sure. And, um, you know, we could remix it again and again, you know, for a big on dream, you know, Eric, Sandberg and myself, we did a lot of the interviews and our editor Angela Slavin put them together and then I would like, you know, sort of you know, backtrack to and forth like with her to get one side of the story. And then when Douglas was doing the book, you know, he took a lot of the source interviews and you know, it was like his interpretation of that, you know, so there are like differences between Big Gold Dream and Hungry Beauty, you know, I find fascinating for me to read it. It's yeah. like, you know, it messes with my mind because I've interviewed these people, um, you know, 15 years ago and, you know, we made a film, you know, seven years ago, like from that. And when I'm reading what like Douglas is saying, and, you know, the drafts, um, I, I don't know what's real or not at all. So, <laughs> you know, isn't sort of like miasma. So I've got like for me, I've got my own sort of like remix of all sort of like three versions together. And you know, without a doubt, if you asked, you know, Malcolm, somebody else, anyone, you know, their recollections of what they read in the book would be different. So you know, you could remix again and again and again, and you'd have different answers. And you've know, also got to think of you know when we did it, you know, people's. Um, answers will vary on, you know, what year you interview them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, you'll never get to the truth, but I think that's a good thing. 
you know, um, like to have a myth as well. And Neil, um, I just wanted to ask you about the importance of journalism at the time, because you mentioned, or Douglas mentioned the Bluebells been on the Melody Maker cover, and it was a really important thing as well, wasn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, the music press at the time was, you know, it, it, it was hugely influential. You know, again, it, you know, it, it, it's easy to forget. Now we can just pull anything off the internet that, you know, getting the NME sounds, Melody Maker, Record Mirror, which were the, the four papers at the time, getting them every week. And there were, you, you picked up on particular writers, you know, Paul Morley in the NME or Dave McCulloch in the sounds, who were the ones who seemed to be, like on the pulse, you know, they wrote about the postcard bands and the fast product bands and the factory bands and the zoo bands. Mm -hmm. And you know, and that was that was hugely influential in itself. And for someone who was just that bit too young to go out and see see bands live, um, that that was all you got. And that was your clue. That and John Peel, and that was what made you go to the record shops and then pick up the fanzines, which opened it was like it allowed you to go that little bit deeper. And you know it, it, it was. I mean, the, the, what what they wrote in that that kind of flamboyant way that was allowed then, in uh, in ways that I'm not I'm not sure really happened anymore. Um, possibly for the better. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was hugely influential. They they sold um, tons of copies. And and um, which which is interesting to, to to think about as well. But I mean that that was that that was part of it because the whole thing about I mean so what what Douglas was saying before the 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 thing about postcard and fast was their long term influence on not just music but on pop culture in general. I think has been huge. What they did and what reading about them, listening to them, uh, going to see them, it gave. Yeah, it, it was full of ideas and it gave those consuming them ideas as well. And that has fed into everything that has followed um, musically and culturally, I think. Yeah, because I think uh, I was the same as you. I would have favourite writers. So if they were writing about a band, I would then check out that band because they did it. And going on to what you said earlier about them seeming bigger than it actually was, I think the weekly music press fed into that because you were reading yes. national newspapers and there were bands, you know, from just down the road or whatever. Well, this is it. I mean, but you know, you you would read about. Um, I remember reading about Felt and loving Felt, and it, I think they, they were amazing. And I went to see them, and there was about fifty people there. And you think, well, it's like they, they were the music pep because so it 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 was both big and small. Mm -hmm. It had a huge influence on a, a certain pocket of. Um, people who were lapping it up, but it didn't go into the mainstream like it later did when people started signing to major labels and everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm aware that time's cracking on. I could talk to you about this for much, <laughs> much longer, but thank you so much to all three of you for taking the time to have a chat. Well, thank you, Alistair. Thank yeah, you. thanks for inviting us. It's been it's a joy. pleasure. And uh, I, yeah, best of luck with Hungry Beat. I think it's a terrific book and I hope it reaches its audience. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. <laughs>